0: months now, I guess, about healthy churches and what they look like, and we've talked about uh, eight already. We've talked about our foundation is Jesus. A healthy church has a foundation in Christ. Healthy churches have effective prayer lives. Healthy churches recognize whose we are and that we're in the process of becoming what God wants us to become. Um, We see discipline as God at work in our lives. We don't see it as trying to tear us down. We value our leaders we have an abiding deep passion for the lost in the world and we understand that people without Jesus are lost. Healthy churches have a great attitude towards the things that we have, the stuff that God's given us, the possessions. And last week we talked about healthy churches live with a holy boldness to do the things that God calls us to do, to be the people he calls us to be no matter what comes. Today I want to talk to you about the importance of a balanced life within the a healthy church. Uh, tucked into the end of Acts chapter two, after the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, on the day of Pentecost, we're given a, a snapshot, if you will, of what a balanced church looks like. Uh, now, some people have taken these verses to say, "Ah, see, this is proof." These verses, they say, these are this is proof that that we're all supposed to live in a commune somewhere and put all of our possessions together and share everything together and live, you know, kind of like a In Israel, a kibbutz is what they call it, but living in a a commune. I don't think that's it. Uh, They've also been misused, I believe, to say, well, if a church doesn't have signs and wonders all the time, something's wrong. I don't think that's what he's talking about either. I suspect what he's talking about in these few verses is much more basic, more organic, if you know what I mean by that, about the understanding of our church or how we look and how we feel, and how we act, and how we operate. Uh, because whenever we become overly focused on one area, and we'll bring this back in the application at the end of the message, but when we take and focus on just one thing that a church is, we get out of balance, and we miss the the, the level that we're supposed to have within the body of Christ. So I want to read the passage in its entirety this morning because I think it's helpful to see the big picture, and then we're going to talk about a couple of things and then maybe an outcome that comes from it and try to apply it. So look at verse 42, Acts chapter 2. The scriptures say this, and they, and they're talking about the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together together, And had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father God, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that God, you'd help us to understand that although each one of us have certain things that we find to be more important than others in what it means to be a church, God, ultimately, you've laid out in your scripture that there's a balance, that there's a number of things that we are to be. And if we put those into practice in a, in a, in a balanced way, that God, you're able to work in us even greater than we could ever imagine and bring about greater results than we could ever believe could happen. And you can do great things through us, not because of us, because of you at work. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's four things I want you to see, and the fifth one is then the outcome. Number one is this. Look what they were committed to. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. Uh, look at verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves, and I underline these two words so you can kind of make sure you see them. They did what? They devoted, they committed, they, they, they gave their lives over to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship and breaking of bread and the prayer. We'll come back to this verse multiple times in the message, but I want you to see that. Understand that at this point in the development of the body of Christ, this was a new thing. They had not developed a list of doctrines. They hadn't developed a doctrinal statement. They hadn't developed any kind of organizational structure or anything. They just were kind of organically hanging out together at the temple because they all lived in Jerusalem. They'd all been encountered in that moment, and there they were. They didn't understand that the dietary laws of the Old Testament had been changed by Jesus. They didn't understand that things would be different now. They didn't understand they could hang out with Gentiles yet. That comes later in Acts. They don't know a lot yet. And so it seems the primary focus of the apostles' teaching at this point was one thing. And here's what it was. Jesus was Messiah. He died for our sins. And he what? Rose from the dead, giving us the potential for new life. That was the essence of the apostles' teaching by Acts chapter 2. They didn't have a lot of things developed yet. They were still working on a lot of new understandings and trying to figure things out. And so that focus would be what you and I would call the essence of the gospel. If you ever say, someone says, what is the gospel? Here's the gospel. Jesus was born a virgin. He was born and lived a perfect life. He died a cruel death and he what? Rose the the third day from the grave, defeating sin and death so that I can have a new life. That is the gospel. You probably say, well, can we just do that one Sunday a year and be done? There's more to it than that, guys. But that's the basis of what they were teaching. That's the basis of their understanding. The central point of teaching in in the scriptures at this point was this. Without a heart surrendered to God, in a moment of salvation, there's no resulting process of salvation to be worked out in life. Salvation is a point, a process, and thank goodness it's a what? A destination that God eventually takes us home to be with him. And this teaching was confirmed. Now, how is it confirmed? Look at verse 43. The kind of Verse 42 is the header here, and then the others kind of support it. Look at verse 43. Here's what happened as they were committed to the apostles teaching these other things. Awe, they were the original ones who used the phrase, this is awesome. This is awesome. Awesome. This was what God was doing. Awe came upon every soul. And sometimes I think we live for Christ longer and longer and longer, and we we sometimes lose the awe, don't we? It becomes second nature to us. It becomes second, not second hand, but it becomes routine. It becomes just, oh yeah, it's that same old stuff again. This, they, they live with an awe. An awe came upon every soul and everybody had signs and wonders. Is that what it says? It does not. It says, and many wonders and signs were being done through the church, through the apostles. Notice they didn't go looking for signs and wonders. What happened? They were living for the Lord, and God brought them about. It happens. You're probably thinking, well, I have never seen a sign in wonder. I'll tell you what, I have. I've seen multiple times in my life where God has done something that the only way to explain it is, look what God did. You know, the one the person, you think that person will never trust Christ. That person would never come to it. They never darken the door of a church unless it's a funeral and they're in the box. You know what I'm saying? We think that will never happen. And then God will break into their life and do something, and we go, wow, look at that. That's all. That's a sign. That's a wonder. We don't seek after those signs, but we, we see and we say, God, thank you for doing that. And the authority in which Jesus was taught had been imparted to, get this, the apostles. Now, you're going, the apostles? Yeah. They taught that the Messiah had come, according to the prophecies. They taught that he came offering eternal life. And what they did is they turned around and shared the same thing. But let me remind you a little bit about these these apostles, the the, the 11 who were alive after Judas Took care of himself, and then there was a the new one. The 12 that were left, they were, get this, very fallible, flawed people. And sometimes we think, oh, those apostles, they must have been like super Christians. They were like perfect. Ha, no. They were like you and me, like us. Make mistakes, have to confess. Have to apologize, have to correct, have to fix, you know, that's who they were. And yet God chose to use those people. He gave them a holy authority confirmed by the working of God in their midst to accomplish the kingdom of work and of God's work. And healthy churches have a passion that says this. We want to know God's word. We want to understand God's word and we want to live God's word. And one of the reasons as your pastor, I tend to preach what are called expository sermons where we take a text of scripture and work through it is because I want you, dear child of God, to grow in your knowledge of God's word. Now, if this is the only time you're getting God's word, you're going to be a very skinny Christian. You with me? Because, I mean, this could be the best sermon you've ever heard in your life and it's still not enough to get through a week. But God is giving us the opportunity to grow in these areas, to to encourage churches who waver on their commitment to the word of God. What they find themselves eventually doing is compromising on everything else. I can name you church group after church group, after church group in American and world history, both that have compromised on God's infallible inerrant word and said, well, that's not exactly what that means. Oh, we're going to interpret it this way. We're going to go here. And those groups tend to decline and eventually become irrelevant. It's happening today in American culture still. We don't want to be those people. Healthy churches are churches that say we want to be committed to God's word. We want to listen to God's word. We want to grow in God's word, and we want to change with his word. Second, a a healthy church, part of this balance is that they're engaged in fellowship. Now, you're probably thinking, yeah, we got a whole room at the end of the hall called the Fellowship Hall. Mm, Hang in there with me. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and the fellowship is the phrase he uses here. A second aspect of a healthy church is they engage in fellowship. Now you're going, I think I know what fellowship means. That means we all bring a potluck meal and we sit, a potluck dish and we sit down and eat. Amen. I got an amen for that. Oh my goodness. It's about time, brother. (laughs) Okay. But I got to tell you, the original language here is much broader and deeper than we tend to think. Fellowship. Okay, the essence of the word in the original is this: a joint participation or sharing things in common. You go, yeah, like Aunt Sally's fried chicken. Well, okay, maybe, but there's more to it than that. Used in other passages, this word is just used to describe the partnership of believers at the, Philippi, the Philippines. Phil, at Philippi. And the sharing of the Holy Spirit among other churches where the bond of Christ's love was not easily broken. A prime pathway of expressing this partnership, though, is, get this, through the, how we use our stuff. You go, you already preached on that once this series. You can't do it again. I don't go there very often, but it's in the text, so we're going to go there. Look at verse 44 and 45. It gives us an example here. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, get this. They didn't share their stuff because they wanted to become poor. They didn't share their stuff because they go, well, if I give them this, they're going to like me. It wasn't about that. They shared their possessions. Why? Because they were engaged in the fellowship. They were connected in the fellowship. They knew what was going on in each other's lives in the fellowship. And they could have conversations and care for each other through the stuff that God had given them. I'm reminded of the incident of the rich young ruler. You remember that guy? He came to Jesus at night going, I want to be saved. You got to tell me how to do it. And he came to him and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell my brother he has to divide his inheritance with me. And in response to that, Jesus goes, we're not going to talk about that. Here's where I want you to hear this. Listen, he says, instead, he says, what do you do with your possessions? What's your stuff really all about to you? What's their place in your life? And he spoke about the propensity that you and I, all of us have to do this. We become so focused on our stuff that we can't see the people around us. We get worried about, what am I going to do with this? Where am I going to put this? We go, I got to warehouse this. I got to store this. I got to replace this. I got to change this. I got to do this. We worry about stuff. And so much of our life is what? Focused on possessions. Within the early church, they had a higher calling, a greater calling, if you will, to do more than just show up, but to engage in life with each other, to fellowship together, to walk together. Healthy churches do that. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, there's a lot of folks in this room. There's no way I could get in everybody's life. You're absolutely right. Oh, I don't have to do it. No, I didn't say you don't have to do it. I said, you can't get in everybody's life. We got to find a place where we connect with, a small group, a setting. Wait, we have a whole structure for that at our church. You know that? We call it Sunday school. Some churches call it Bible study groups. Some churches call it Bible study fellowships. Some churches call it home cell groups. It doesn't matter which one it is, but you need that circle where you engage with others on a deeper level than you can do in a setting like this. That's where fellowship becomes deeper and broader. They know each other. It means we have to get engaged. See, when our actions lead us apart and they cause us to divide instead of come together, we're missing it. Healthy churches work for unity and peace, putting ourselves and our preferences even at times aside. So a balanced life is committed to the apostles' teaching, engaged in fellowship. Third, it breaks bread together. You go, didn't you just talk about that? Oh, we actually didn't. We talked about fellowship. Remember, now we're going to talk about breaking. Now we're going to go to the fellowship hall and have chicken. No, no, don't go there either. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. Now, let me tell you something. In the Greek language, the little article that's at the beginning of that phrase, the, is a definite article. It is not there just to smooth the language out in English. It's actually the breaking of the bread, of bread. And you're going, so we're talking about Lord's Supper. Yes, but it's more than that. It's not just that. He's talking about, you know, in some churches have taken this to say, oh, that means we got to have Lord's Supper every time we come together for worship. We've got to celebrate it every time. I grew up in a church that said you have to have it every quarter on the what? The fifth Sunday. Some of you are wondering, yeah, I remember that too. Our church, we do it as it fits into the schedule of the church's life, and we usually do it more than four times a year. So when is it supposed to be done? That's only part of this whole big deal now. Because in the New Testament, when he uses this phrase, when writers use this phrase, it is not exclusive to Lord's Supper. It happens in other places. And so I don't believe he's talking about the communion service. Over in in the book of Acts, toward the end, there was a, if you remember, Paul was um Uh, headed to to Rome where he was eventually probably going to die. And they had a shipwreck and they ended up on the island of um, uh, Malta. And uh, when they came out of the water, they got a fire going and that fire woke up a snake. Do you remember that story? Some of you are going, I didn't know that was in Acts 27, I think it was. And and, and the snake latches on to Paul's hand and everybody on the island goes, yep, see, he was a bad man. We know it because the snake's going to get him and take him out. That was superstition, by the way. But he didn't. And when it was over, they got together and they broke bread together. Now, I promise you, those people on the island had, did not have any relationship to Christ. This wasn't Lord's Supper. This was just a meal. They were coming together. Now, here's the point I want you to catch, because this is why breaking of bread is important. How many of you go to see family at holidays? Some of you are going, oh, I do. <laughs> Too honest? I mean, some of us, that's our response to family. Oh, man, I got to go. Some of us are going, man, I love to get together. How many of you get to go to your family's house and they make the special meal, whatever it is? They make a particular thing that you only get at the holidays. My mom used to make meringue pies. And she was going to teach us as the kids how to make those. But then she passed away, so we lost that skill in our family. Oh, that's a a boon to our waistline, I can tell you that. But anyway... She would make chocolate, she'd make uh, coconut cream, she'd make, I mean, whatever, she'd make walnut pies, pecan pies, but yeah, okay. But why do we go together and do those things? I can get those pies elsewhere, I'm going to tell you. No, it's good, but I can get them elsewhere, right? We come together in those moments, we break bread with family because we're family, We have those in times of engagement and conversation, and we have conversations at the tables that we don't have any other time of the year or time of the week or time of the month. We come together, and that is exactly what he's talking about, is that intimacy that we find when we share a meal together. We share a time together. You don't have to have a meal to have it happen, but it's important that we come together and share our goods. But ultimately what we do in those times with family is what? We share life. That's what it's about. Healthy churches include that. It's not all they do, but it's part of who they are. They share life together. They break bread together. How many times have we made an assumption about somebody? We go, I just know what they're thinking, but we've never had the conversation with them. The more we have this breaking of bread, the less likely we are to make assumptions that are wrong because we know each other better. We know the character. We know the attitudes. We know the thoughts. We know who they are. We say, they'd never do that. We think the best because we know them better instead of thinking the worst because we don't. Healthy churches break bread together because their lives are entwined together. Fourth, they also practice regular prayer. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the, and again, definite article in the Greek, the prayers. They are going, do we have written prayers? We're supposed to be praying, and nobody told me. Hang on, don't go there. The fourth aspect of a balanced fellowship is this importance of a regular prayer life. This definite article there was there intentionally because that's what they were doing. Now, come back in my in history with me for a second. This is the early uh, the, the thirty. 334 A.D., the Christians only exist in one town in the world called Jerusalem. And right in the smack dab middle of town is a what? A big old temple that they have been worshiping at for centuries. Y'all with me? I mean, not only did mama go there and grandma gone there, but every generation they could think of back went there. That's what they would do. So these people, when they come to know Messiah, when they come to know the Christ... They say, well, we're going to go worship. Where are we going to go? They gathered in the temple courts. And they would pray and they would fellowship and they would relate to each other. They would sing and they would worship. And they would do what? They would do the prayers. They are going, the prayers. What is he talking about? In the culture of the day, the Jewish culture of the day, they had three times a day when the culture would basically stop and have prayer. In the morning, at midday, and at night. They had it built into the culture. Now, we live in a secular society, so we don't have that. But we can build that structure into our lives. You know, the Muslims, though they're praying to the wrong God, don't misunderstand, they do five times a day. They have that. They have a, It's the same culture in a lot of ways because they are related in a lot of ways. But But they had this structure. And what Jesus, even though he had set them free from the religious system of the day, They were still living with it. You know, we're products of our culture, aren't we? We're products of our upbringing. I hear myself say things sometimes my mom would say, my dad would say, the preacher of the church would say. I hear things. Those things are part of who I am. God doesn't say, well, come to know me and push all that away. He takes who we are and uses our lives where we are. And some of the things we do, we go, it doesn't make any sense to anybody else, but it's part of who we are. And the prayers, this structure. The big idea I think we want to grab here is this. They had a commitment. Now get this. And healthy churches do this. They had a commitment that says, we're going to get in regular contact with the Father. We're going to talk to God on a regular basis. And you're going, so I need to set aside a, a time when I'm going to pray to God all the time. Maybe you do to get in that habit of doing it. Maybe you need to say, okay, every morning I'm going to wake up. The first five minutes of my day, I'm going to talk to God. And you're going, I don't know what I'd say to God for five minutes. Okay, start with three. Start with two. That'd be double what you were doing yesterday, right? Just talk to him and say, okay, God, I don't know. Here I am. What we would do well to do is to emulate their action by saying this. We are going to commit to engage, healthy churches do this, to engage in prayer, the prayers on a regular basis. We're gonna talk with God. We're gonna talk to God. We're gonna stop and go, I'm listening to God. And what comes out of that? Number five, numerical blessings were found. Look at verse 47, the last part of it. And the apostles added to the number. Wait, 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 did I mess up there? Hang on, read this verse with me again. And who? Y'all say it with me. And the, Lord. say it again, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to know that is one of the most freeing verses for me. Because you feel like sometimes what? I've got to do this. I've got to accomplish. I've got to. I got to share. I got to. I got to bring I got to tell somebody. I got to do. I've got to do it. Guess what? I don't got to do it. All I got to do is be faithful to be who God's called me to be. To speak when I'm called to speak. To be quiet when I'm called to be quiet. Amen. Y'all are taking on a dynamic this morning. I don't know if I like. Anyway. Might hush and eat chicken. We'd be good, I guess. All right. <laughs> if these people, called by God, saved by God, transformed by God, had chosen a pathway of every man for themselves, rejected fellowship, chose to ignore one another, and foregone prayer on a regular basis, the church would have died. But when we turn it around and we begin to do these things, we say, God, it's not about me. God, I want to have fellowship. God, I'm going to not ignore each other. I'm going to have life and we're going to walk together. I'm going to pray. Then God does some amazing things. And it's God who does it. The primary purpose God sent Jesus to do was to what? To live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to be raised the third day, so that what? We could have forgiveness in life. And for some strange reason, and I I look in the mirror and I look at our staff and I think to myself, how in the world is God going to use us? You know what I'm saying? But he does. I look at some of y'all and think, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. But God uses us with our flaws, our imperfections, our messes, and our good stuff. You see, some churches are known for fellowship, but they don't like walking together. Some are known for eating chicken, but they don't do anything else. Some are all about evangelism, but they don't pray. Whenever a local congregation is out of balance, it won't be effective like God wants it to be. Effective churches are balanced churches. So what do we do with this? Three quick thoughts. I'm I'm going to be finished a minute late today. Like last week, I was finished early. So we'll balance it out. Balance it out. You like that? Number one, we are God's tools in the world. You ever thought of yourself as a tool? If you're a child of God, you are a tool of God. Some of you are hammers. Some of y'all are hammers. Some of y'all are wrenches. Some of y'all are those snakes that go down in the sewer system. I'm just saying, some of y'all are just ugly and nasty. You with me? But we all have a role, right? You with me? I'm I'm, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek there. Don't don't think I'm thinking literal there, okay? But God uses us. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't walk away from you. He says, you're mine, and I'm going to use you in my kingdom how I want to use you in my work if you'll just let me. Some of us go, he ain't going to use me. You know who you're cheating? You and the church. It's a lose-lose. He wants to use people like you and me to talk about him, to share his good news. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Does that mean you're perfect? Nope. Does that mean I'm perfect? (laughs) Nope. But it does mean this. We get to partake in the grand design that God has in this world. You get to be a part of it. You get to be a tool that God uses to reach those who don't know God yet. And the primary group of people through whom he works, listen, is not the Billy Graham organization. They're great. It's not through Franklin Graham. It's not through Compassion International. It's not through all those groups. It's not through the other one. I can't think of it. It's through the local church. You go, but they're a mess. "Eh, So are you. It's okay. He brings us together and allows us to do the things he allows us to do. God's tools are right here. Think of this as God's toolbox this morning. All his tools are in the room together. Some of his tools are laying around in bed. Some of his tools said, I'm not going to do it today. Some of us said, we're going to be here. We want to be a part of God's kingdom. God uses tools. I'm reminded of the passage in Romans 10. That said this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are, they to, uh, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And you're thinking, oh, he's talking about pastors. Oh, it's way bigger than that. Look down at your feet. If you're a child of God, you got beautiful feet. He wants to use your feet in the kingdom. Because we're most like God when we come together as other believer, with other believers and make the gospel known. Being a tool in his hand is a good thing. You know, I, I have a, a tool shed. I have a, a tool box. I don't have a shed full of tools. But, and I can use some of those tools, kind of. I'm not real crafty. But you take a guy who knows what he's doing, he can take those tools and do amazing things. Listen, God wants to do amazing things. With your life and mine. It's because it's not about the tool. You ever thought of a hammer? A hammer doesn't do it by itself, does it? screwdriver doesn't work by itself. A plow doesn't work by itself. It takes somebody to know what they're doing. Number two, do you know who's most important to God? People are. You go, Patrick, we know that, okay? We know it, but we need to be reminded. People are the most important thing to God. You know, but but possessions are important. Possessions are have a place. Don't misunderstand. But people are way more important. And while God certainly created the world in which we live, and we should care for the environment and do all those things that we got to do, ultimately the most important thing on planet Earth is yourself, the people. We get things out of order. We think, oh, rules are most important. Oh, regulations are possessions are prime. No, the heart of God is this: people. We get so off track, don't we? We get so worried about this stuff and that stuff and this thing and that thing and this and go into here and do it. That's why we prayed a minute ago, this passage. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food. Yes, it is. Is not life, is the body not more than clothing? Absolutely. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Father in heaven feeds them. Aren't you more important than them? Of course you are. Healthy churches consistently and humbly place the needs of people way above the needs of the organization. Sometimes we have to defer to a weaker brother so that we can take care of the unity and the fellowship of the church. Because when the life is focused on winning the argument, we've missed the point. And we don't win, we all lose. One more thought, and it's this we need to commit to regular prayer. Spiritual discipline that healthy churches are fully committed to is this they pray. They pray. And we've talked about prayer a couple times in this series, but let me just briefly touch again. Healthy churches, healthy churches and healthy Christians are people who are committed to an ongoing and regular conversation with God. This is God. I want to talk with you. I want to listen to you. I suspect many of you think, well, I don't know what I'd say to God. I'm not here to make you feel bad about yourself, please. That's not my goal but to remind you that we need this conversation with the one who has saved and is saving our souls. And most of us lack in this area. I think it's, some of it is we don't think he listens. Some of us, we think maybe he doesn't hear. Some of us honestly think I don't need to talk to him. I can handle it myself. You've probably heard of Max Lucado. Max Lucado said this about prayer. He says, our prayers may be awkward, guilty, our attempts may be feeble, guilty. But since the prayer, the power of prayer is in the one who listens, who hears it and not in the one who prays it, our prayers make a difference. You think, man, I don't know what to say to God. Sometimes we just need to sit before him and be quiet and listen. Turn off the music, turn off the podcast, turn off the conversation, t- turn off the phone and just say, God, I'm here. The psalmist said this, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Healthy churches are filled with people who regularly, consistently come to the Lord in prayer and say, God, direct me. But the beginning point for all this is not all of this. It comes back to What? Our heart. Where's your heart? Where's your relationship? Where's your connection with God? You say, oh, I walked an aisle years ago. Great. I walk an aisle every Sunday. It comes down to knowing Jesus. And healthy churches find this balance. Healthy Christians find this balance. We don't let ourselves get focused on just one thing or this thing or that thing. But we let all of these things kind of come together and create a full picture of who we are. And the beginning point is knowing Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you haven't trusted Him. That's the first step you need to make. For some of you, it's like, oh, I know Jesus, but I'm not committed to a local church. You need to make that commitment. For some, it's other things you need to pray about and commit to God. We want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you acknowledging that you are God and we're not, that you're the leader and we're the follower. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to see that. We pray for those who need to make some type of decision this morning, whether it's a private one at the seat they're sitting in or a public one up here at an altar. We pray, God, that you would be free in these moments to move as you see fit, to work in our lives however you choose. As the old song says, wherever you go, I'll follow. In your name we pray.